Hi everyone, welcome to Roses All Trash, the accompanying podcast to read community. I'm Catherine. I'm Ryan. And this is the podcast for our third week of March. Our theme for the month is narratives of healing. For this third week, we're going to be discussing rape and assault. So this is your content warning that this is what we're going to be talking about. This is what the readings are all about. So feel free to turn this off. So our first reading is by Suzanne Mackenzie Moore, Counterstorying Rape. It's well known that the stories that we tell ourselves influence how we see ourselves and the way we remember things impacts our ongoing identity. So larger cultural narratives direct, delineate, and restrict our personal narratives. Quote, master narratives are afforded the influence to guide how lives should be lived, how blame and merit should be allocated. So Mackenzie Moore's paper studies two major master narratives around sexual assault and the way they interact with other existing narratives around gender, power, sexuality, essentialism, institutionalized therapy, etc. The first master narrative is the negate or blame master narrative. So this constructs rape as, quote, just sex, or it blames women for its occurrence, except under extraordinarily narrow and rigid parameters, which again, are gendered and have to do with the environment and everything like that. The second one is what we think of as the good narrative, the progressive one called the trauma of rape narrative. It has been advanced by feminists and mental health practitioners to resist the first negate or blame narrative. That's its main purpose, to resist that other one. But really, these narratives do still create a binary. Quote, by inverting the assumptions of the master narrative, the trauma of rape discourse has resulted in a swing from universe, a universalizing presumption of no harm is done to an equally universalizing presumption of severe harm is done. And the reality is that the process of narrative repair, which is when a harmed person engages in changing their individual or group identity through alternate storytelling, sort of realizing what they were assuming and then being like, oh, I don't think it's that, you know, in a therapeutic situation or otherwise, this narrative repair can and does happen against all master narratives, even quote unquote good ones. So the trauma of rape counter narrative can be really useful to some people after being raped, to some women after being raped. But if we still understand that words like trauma, victim, survivor, recovery, and healing create space for some women and also doesn't necessarily create space for other women. We can then de-link therapy and feminism kind of meaning the same thing or making feminism a vehicle for therapy, institutionalized therapy. Instead, we can focus on individual recovery and create a more encompassing approach that also includes that feminist core of emancipating us from the industry of rape, I guess, or rape culture. So our second reading is going to be by Kim Elsesser. Cross-examination is brutal. Is it time to consider restorative justice in sexual assault cases? So it discusses the Harvey Weinstein trial and the way the victims, the women, were cross-examined and some of them were brought to tears to the point where proceedings had to halt uh, because they were blamed and grilled. Like, why didn't you tell someone? Why didn't you do this? Why did you let him into your room? So on and so forth, the blame narrative, like you discussed earlier. Then they talk also about restorative justice as an additional option, discussing specifically this mother-daughter team, Barbie and Marley Liss. Marley Liss discusses how she went to the normal sort of criminal justice route to pursue like justice for what happened to her but she says that she really wanted him to look me in the eye and tell me how he could do such a thing to another human and it's she then she found out about restorative justice and it's an alternative to criminal prosecution 
and it brings together the one harmed and the one who causes harm. So in her case, the one who harmed her like went to therapy for a year and they had a session where they met for about eight hours and they were they brought people with each of them, brought people to support them to talk through what happened and why and like what do we do next? And she talks about like the emotional release and how that for her was helpful because it was more than just punishing the one who harmed her, it was bringing healing for herself. It also discusses some of the pitfalls of restorative justice, which is that it's not really an option that's widely available. It's only available under very specific circumstances and even under those circumstances, maybe not in the most effective way. And it also requires that the one who committed harm is able to take accountability for their actions and responsibility and even just admit that they did that. And that in itself is a big presumption. Yeah, our final rating by Sujata Baliga, A Different Path for Confronting Sexual Assault, is pretty similar. It's an essay by the director of the Restorative Justice Project at Impact Justice. Baliga is also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, sexual assault, and rape. And she sort of anchors her, her essay to the testimony process of Professor Christine Blasey Ford, to depict just how horribly incompatible cross-examination and legal hearings are with sexual violence cases. In fact, she contrasts like having to sit there and someone coming at you with the intent to prove you wrong, to prove your memory is wrong, to show that you're, you're lying. How is, that, how is that better than being put in a room with your abuser or your rapist and sort of having that conversation on your own, on your own terms? She, so she discusses her work as a restorative justice facilitator and says that in sexual violence cases, there's a, quote, common thread. They want to hear the person who assaults to them say, you're telling them, you're telling the truth. I did that to you. It's my fault, not yours. And like Catherine said, these talks are usually attended by anyone invited and negotiated by the survivor and the person responsible for harm. So in Baliga's example, the survivor, her name is Sophia. She decided that she was too embarrassed to have any men from her or Michael, the person who did harm to her, the person who assaulted her. She didn't want any men from either family present. And so the meeting ended up including Sophia, Michael, their mothers, and Michael's younger sister. And they were all able to speak, even even putting voice to attitudes that are really you know politically incorrect but super honest like michael was like oh i thought good girls are supposed to struggle and the fact that he could say that and that like that harm and that hurt could be put out there with their family members as witness people who love them on both sides as well as beliga who is a trained and licensed facilitator right that's like a key thing in restorative justice cases because when you agree to restorative justice methods there's an implicit confession of fault. You're saying, yes, I did it. And that's what, and you're going into it. So that is the baseline. The person who was harmed, the survivor, establishes that baseline before they even get in the room. But often the only way that you can have restorative justice practices happen is by saying that the matters discussed in that meeting can't be held against the participants in more formal disciplinary processes. So of course, Beliga acknowledges that not all cases are this satisfying and not all survivors want this process to happen, for sure. But it does show that, quote, a key effective aspect of restorative justice is the way power is rebalanced through dialogue. Crime survivors define their own needs rather than remaining at the mercy of a court's legitimation. And that's like a really key thing, right? Like 
for restorative justice specific to sexual assault is that you're not sitting there waiting for other people to believe you enough that they can punish the person in front of you. Going to restorative justice is kind of this thing of like, they already said they did it. And now we can talk about why this happened and why did it happen to me? And why did you choose me? And why did you like, how could you even do that to me? And it's the, the survivor that's sort of holding the power there. I think before I read these articles and the Mackenzie Moore paper, I like a lot of people were like, how could you put a survivor in a room with their abuser or their rapist? Like, that's horrible. But the thing is that most proponents of restorative justice for sexual violence are sexual violence survivors. It's not just random people being like, oh, we should do this for people who are raped. And yet most people's impulse reaction is to be like, you must not know how bad sexual assault is. Like they obviously know how bad it is, you know? And I think this impulse, my impulse came from this trauma of rape narrative. It is a progressive narrative, right? It's of course fighting back this like blame or negate, uh, negate or blame narrative. But the trauma of rape narrative also forces women to look at something that happened to them and call it life-changing. Rape is life-changing, it's psychologically ruining, et cetera, you know? I mean, this is something we discussed in an earlier episode some time ago, the like survivor versus victim narrative. And it's not that sexual assault and rape aren't life-changing and they're not traumatic. It's not that at all because they are, and like they are really debilitating events that are life-changing for many people, but also by focusing on the trauma, it like we don't focus enough on finding a way for victims and survivors to to heal and to go on to continue to live a good life after that I don't know it's like trauma porn you know mm-hmm. like people get wrapped up in the gory details of the event itself I mean that's like I remember talking to someone like people were talking about like you know people who have been victims of sexual assault like if you want to support your friend or your partner who tells you that they've been a victim of rape or sexual assault like one of the key things is like you don't need to know the details like you don't need to ask like who did it or when or what happened or exactly, you know, like none of that matters. Like they just like, if they say that that happened, it happened. And what you need to do or like what you need to do is find a way to support them in the next step. I think that's really important. Like our focus is so much on the details and on forcing them to relive it either in the blame or in the trauma narrative that we're not thinking about what do we do after. I think more than like this restorative justice option becoming more available um, than sort of allowing us to pass judgment on the choices that sexual assault survivors make. It's more like juxtaposing this, this cross-examination form of justice that we have with the nature of a sexual assault. Like it really just exposes, again, this sort of retributive uh, ideology behind the court system in America and in the Western world. Like okay, so this person is convicted and goes to prison, let's say for like a hundred years or whatever, like best case scenario for, but like, how is that the best case scenario? We're equating this person going away with the survivor becoming better. Let's say there is a huge emotional component to surviving sexual assault. It feels horrifying to have to put that up to a quantitative or to a systemic remedy. It's an emotional hurt. I don't know. You can only recover with engagement, I think. And that engagement, you know, like I think you mentioned uh, earlier in this episode or maybe in the last episode that it doesn't have to be that 
the person who hurt you confesses, sometimes it can at least be a little helpful to just sit them down in a room and be like, I don't care if you don't believe that you did this to me, you did do this to me, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's like you say, like engagement is key. And that's the thing with our traditional criminal justice system is that the survivor isn't engaged with the justice. It's 12 other people who you should don't know. And then they're the ones who get to decide what will fix you or like what will heal it or make it better. Like they don't know you. (laughs) They don't know what happened, even if they hear all the court testimony and all that. Like it removes the survivor themselves, the person who is most crucial to the to the like fixing of this issue from that that role yeah and you know for sure there are mechanisms in place where when you sue someone I think it would I mean it would go under tort law where like you can sue for damages that are not only to like repair what happened but like to quote-unquote restore you to the original condition and so that can be these like ongoing fines for to fund that the survivor therapy or whatever but you're right the key thing that key sense of agency is not there I this happened to me and I get to decide what I do from here on out is not there it just becomes this happened to me now I have to go to the police and see what they do and then go to the jury and see what they do and go to the judge and see what they do yeah it's like this happened to me now I have to go beg a bunch of strangers to believe me so that they might Mm -hmm. take pity and give me some money or so in the Baliga article she quotes Christine Blasey Ford as saying, I'm here not because I want to be here. You know, no yeah. one wants to be there. We're talking specifically about restorative justice and sexual assault for a reason. But there are also things like, um, let's say you're living in a poor neighborhood and you don't want to call the police when like your car gets broken into or something. You know, what are the options then? Like you still should be able to sue for damages to pay that pay off that car window especially if you don't have the funds to do so but do you really want to opt into a legal system that might endanger lives at that point and it might not even be lives involved with like you or the person who broke into your car but like their family members their neighbors family members like if you know the reality then what can you do and I think there's a similar thing for sexual assault or sexual violence between partners. Let's say like your boyfriend coerces you into sex. Like how is your choice between calling the police and getting them on a sexual assault registry versus sitting and forgetting about it? You know? Both of those are bad options. The quote at the end of this article by Koss where she says that survivor victims say that they want justice that validates the legitimacy of their victimization, gives voice to their harm, empowers them to influence how their case is conducted, focuses on offender behavior and not on theirs, and involves them in determining the consequences imposed on the responsible person. I think empowers them to influence how their case is conducted is important. I think also given the like statistics on how many people are like actually brought to court and actually like held accountable or accountable in the criminal justice system for their actions and cases of sexual assault and rape are so few people kind of I guess take what they can get because they think that's the best option and I think also an issue like a greater overarching issue I guess in the case of sexual assault is there's this inherent viewing of the person you've assaulted as like less than human or less than or like there there's some 
lack of acknowledgement for the humanity of the person, it's hard to get the assaulter to accept the responsibility and accept the fault necessary to begin restorative justice. And it requires like the outside condemnation of a jury of a court system. And even then, like even after an outside group of people have condemned them, many assaulters like don't take responsibility or don't hold themselves accountable as having done something awful. Right. Yeah, I really like that in the quote, it says like it focuses on the behavior of the offender as opposed to a sexual assault case is always going to be questioning what the victim was doing or what the survivor was doing, what they were wearing and all that. Like, and instead in, in restorative justice practice, you go, you go in with that baseline. Like we're here to talk about why you did what you did, you know? Yeah. This is, this is hopping around a little bit. But, like, I remember seeing a TikTok where there's, like, that audio that's, like, the crinkling unrackling. It's, like, surprise, shoddy. But someone made a TikTok with the audio where this guy was, like, me showing, like, my girlfriend the dead body of, like, her abuser or, like, her rapist or something. And it's, like, oh my God. And then, like, in the comments, he's, like, oh, I don't have a girlfriend. Like, this is just what I would do. And people are, like, why do you have this fantasy of, <sighs> like, hurting someone to punish them for having hurt? a woman like why is this like it's this weird like heroic fantasy that you have yeah like and that's it's like the opposite of restorative justice like it's not about what the victim actually would have wanted or like I mean I don't know maybe that's something she would have wanted this imaginary girlfriend that he doesn't have who am I to tell someone like maybe they didn't want their abuser to be hurt who am I to say say no to that but like projecting this male fantasy of like an eye for an eye type of revenge mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rather than focusing on what the the victim needs we yeah. just let women do what they need to do <laughs> like maybe we can talk about that like why we find so much why we find gone girl stories exhilarating you know what i mean <laughs> it's like this ultimate fantasy of like all this pent up rage that we've repressed, even for people who haven't necessarily lived through that experience and gone girl of being cheated on or any other experience around like being, being mm-hmm. like, you know, betrayed or abused. It's cathartic by proxy, you know, watching yeah. her go through this. Although I doubt many people in reality would really want that to happen to the people who have hurt them. Like it's this type of catharsis. I mean, isn't it kind of where, like, this femme fatale comes from? Like, and I think that is part of, I think we talked about this in the episode for the first week of March, where it is, it has been up till now, a lot of men writing women's stories, where it's like, they had, like, a sexual assault way in their past, and that's why they became, like, this, like, warrior, or whatever, like, kills men, and then it's, like, hot and stuff, like, it's, like, completely appropriated for the male gaze. When I'm watching things like that, I feel like, oh, this isn't for me, but I can still enjoy it, you know? <laughs> and I yeah. don't really think too hard about why is it not for me when it really should be for me, not for these men who find women who could kill them worthy of their attraction. You know what I mean? I swear to God, every other sentence I say is like, I saw this on TikTok. I saw this on <laughs> But okay. I, I do love some critical media analysis and I follow a lot of accounts. But one of the, one of the takes I saw is people like, there's this narrative of like women are victims of like assault or abuse or rape 
in media and it's often media created by men and women like have this bad thing happen to them and then they like phoenix rise from the ashes become this warrior and like exact revenge and they become like stronger and like and they're mm-hmm. like i think that men create this narrative in media because they want to assuage their own guilt for what they've done to women as a collective they want to tell themselves that like women have become stronger yeah. or better because of it like the pain has made them stronger what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and then that right. way they can like feel less guilty that it happens that maybe they themselves have done that yeah um, it's like how white people or rich people love stories about like poor people making it out or whatever because yeah. like see see you can do it you know yeah I don't have to feel bad <laughs> yeah and like I think the trauma of rape narrative while extremely uh necessary like we can't not have it because yeah. of how much like rape culture forces this negate or blame narrative we can't not have a response to that but like using the word survivor it's kind of intended to show that like rape is a big deal and so of course we have people become very like become more two-dimensional weirdly like because once you create a narrative that tugs on people's emotions people sympathize they don't identify um and it's a beautiful thing when there are like things like survivor networks or, you know, uh, group therapy and things like that. Like that's where survivors, I think, would really find the community community that they need. But creating these stories of like heroes who like escape their assaulter and everything, like really we're primed to enjoy those stories the way we enjoy Phoenix rising from the ashes type of stories. And we need to be really careful not to conflate the two. Although I will grant that I love Gone Girl. I was really confused when I watched Gone Girl. I was like, why would they release this right now? Because I felt like it made survivors look bad. And I was like, why would they do this? But then I realized I missed the point. (laughs) I mean, I'm also, I'm not someone who has like survived rape or sexual assault. So take everything I say with several grains of salt. Yeah, but I don't know. Something about her like, I mean, her response is to the fact that her husband was cheating on her and that it was just Mm -hmm. kind of a dick in general. But something about watching her, like, she just went fully off the rails and got rewarded for it. And I feel like that's something, like, men, men are allowed to go, like, off the rails. They may not always be rewarded for it, but at least it's like, yeah, that makes sense. You kind of, like, went crazy after you put up with all this bullshit. Like, women don't get to do that. Like, no matter how much bullshit they put up with, they they don't get to go batshit. So it was really satisfying to see her, like, she took all of this like bullshit and like all these like small little injustices and then mm-hmm. she got to go crazy and I was like good for her like <laughs> I mean obviously Gone Girl was a hit but do you think if like let's say in an alternate universe it had been kind of like a redemptive arc as like where she like comes to terms with like what happened to her and she like finds somebody to love her and accept her and stuff like do you think that would have been a harder narrative to swallow than this like off the rails and never has to repent for it narrative I don't know that would depend on some of the details like exactly how she came to terms with it and like if she came to terms with it and returned to him or like came to terms with it and like moved on with her life I mean uh-huh. okay I'm gonna open up a can of worms here um okay. Lolita the end ending- okay. <laughs> The ending of the book, obviously. Wait, this refresh is huge... me. I, she dies, right? In childbirth. Yes, at the very end. She dies in childbirth. But the ending of the book, 
Humbert takes her on this, takes Dolores on this road trip across country. And there's this other guy, I think his name is Quilty, who's like also a pedophile. Dolores, desperate to escape Humbert, makes friends with him and runs off with him, escapes from Humbert to go off with him in order to save herself. But she's really, she's just running to another abuser. And Mm -hmm. then like he loses contact with her for like years or something like that. And eventually what happens is she reaches out, Dolores reaches out to Humbert again and she's married and she's pregnant and she's like, I need money. Like, she's like, can you give me some money? That's it. So he like sees her one last time and like, she's pregnant and she's like a grown woman. She's still like in her twenties, but it's like this weird disconcerting for him to like see her that she is different. And he gives her some money and leaves and he never sees her again. And then like, it's like very hidden, like in the epilogue, they say like Mrs. Whatever her last name is died in childbirth. And only if you're really paying attention do you realize that the man she marries, his last name is that last name. I forgot what it was. So a lot of people might end the book being like, oh, I guess she just has a kid and lives happily ever after. But she dies in childbirth with a stillborn daughter, I think. But anyhow, I remember sharing that book with a past partner and we were talking about it. And he said he hated the ending, that they had contact again. But for me, I kind of liked it because I was like, she found a guy who loved her and that made her happy. And like, well, I don't like the fact that she had to go ask her stepfather for money. I liked the confirmation that she built herself a life that like mm-hmm. was able to make her feel happy and make her feel good about herself. Mm-hmm. And that she found her a safety again that she wasn't granted as a child. Again, as someone who's never experienced any of the horrors she went through, maybe like take my opinion with many grains of salt. I I did not read it as closely as you did. I kind of, I read some parts very deeply and then some parts I skimmed because I had to read it for a class. So I would like press for time. I completely interpreted that ending differently. I was like, oh, I mean, yeah, maybe she's in love and stuff, but she's really not doing well. <laughs> I was like, oh, she kind of needs some money. And then obviously her dying and then you said her stillborn daughter, like that's so much. That's so much. Whoa! What metaphor is that? Who died? What's going yeah, on? Yeah, Navikov was a <laughs> little heavy-handed, but um, yeah, I was like, okay. <laughs> you're right. Like, it wasn't. It's not like she found a great life where she was totally happy. And honestly, I don't even think she was like totally in love with her husband. But she found a normal life where she wasn't constantly threatened with someone who like respected her and like wanted to care for her and take care of her. And I feel like that's what she should have had when she was a child. I feel, yeah, I feel like rather than debate, like, which ending is more probable, I think it's really interesting that you read it that way. Like, I think it's more interesting to discuss your reading of it as a reflection on you. And I think it's, like, really wonderful that you saw that for her and you were like, great, I'm so happy for her. Like, I think that's a beautiful thing. That, like, you you had kind of a, she walked into the distance as you closed, the, as you near the end of the novel, you're like, bye. And she's like, bye. And then, you know. I mean, what I really wanted was for her to have, like, all of her wildlife dreams come true and for her to, like, never be sad again. But, like, that's unrealistic. So when, like, having read what she went through and endured, the fact that she was able to find just a place of safety and a place of mm-hmm. respect to me as, like, she she kind of beat the odds there. Yeah, I mean, I will also say that your reading of Lolita throughout the book is actually really different for me. Maybe it's books like Lolita that either, you know, maybe it's like 
an element of the book itself, like of the story itself. It's like a certain type of story that makes people really confident in their own individual reading, or maybe it's like the sort of vibe or, you know, hype surrounding the book that makes people really certain of their reading. But we both, like when we discussed it, we had very different um, perspectives on Lolita and we were both like, oh, oh, oh okay. <laughs> where, where you were like, no, I think the whole time she's like very clearly a child and she doesn't necessarily like want any of it or whatever. I read the story as like, as like a child, a girl, a young woman developing like her own sense of identity and agency and that not being on her terms. Yeah. And so she had these like little seeds of desire and stuff and like exploration. She seemed, she seemed to me an otherwise kind of assertive person. It was, completely taken advantage of by somebody with real agency you know what I mean yeah well I think actually both like both of those readings I think they coexist actually and I Mm -hmm. think I agree with your reading and I think also like because that's what she is she is like a 12 year old girl but she also like that stage where a lot of children first start to realize that they have a sexuality like they have yeah like that they start to assert agency on the world so she's going through that like any normal child would but also keeping in mind that we read this whole book through the eyes of Humbert Humbert, who is the most unreliable narrator of all time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and who explicitly says at the start of the book that he's writing this to try and get people to sympathize with him. So he exaggerates yeah. these normal childhood like discoveries that she's of having course. about herself so as to further justify his own abuse. And it's a question yeah. of whether or not we as the reader are able to like whether or not we fall for his manipulation of us and his mm-hmm. manipulation of the story or whether right. or not we're able to see through his bullshit. You're right. You're right. I think, you know, when a book has this much hype around it, I try to like really block it out and be like, who, like, who is this person? Who is, who are these characters to me? For me, I identified really strongly with that part of her that was trying to figure out different things and like was aware of people's attraction to her and wasn't sure whether it would be a good girl thing or a bad girl thing to respond or this sense of like having more control but she has no idea she has no idea you know to me like I really focused on that on that reading yeah I mean it's a classic case of like children are children and they're learning new things and like they're learning to become adults very slowly by testing boundaries and it's the responsibility of the adults around them to show them what the boundaries are and to yeah. do the right thing because right. children don't know don't really know better because they're learning it's their first time around and Humbert always yeah he's not the right adult for that whether or not you have like a really really cared for childhood you can still have the sense of invincibility that ultimately people who are predatory will take advantage of uh, but I think you know my interest or like my emphasis in my personal reading of Lolita also led me to be really interested in the Mackenzie Moore paper there are people who read Lolita and they're only okay with it being written because they're like oh my gosh poor Lolita poor Dolores oh she's nothing but a child like how could he have done that to her and like I just don't think she needs to be a saint and a child and like a baby for Humbert Humbert to be disgusting do you know what I mean yeah like we don't need women who I I know this is like um, not how most survivors feel but we don't need women to be like hugely affected by rape for rapists to be punished to the maximum extent. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like a woman can be raped and literally walk away and be like, I don't really care. He should still, the rapist, you know, regardless of gender should still be punished to the maximum extent. 
No, I mean, it's like, it just reminds me of like stuff that happened to me when I was younger. And like, I was like on the internet before like social media was really that big. So there were all these like alternate social media networks. I was talking to people and I had literally no idea what they wanted from me. But like, you know, it became pretty obvious soon enough. And like, through whatever like resilience or like sense of invincibility I had, a lot of those things didn't like cause me trauma. And so now I like don't really know how to talk about it because there's only this narrative of like, it hurt me so bad. It like impacted my psych, like my psychology and I need to go to therapy to talk about, like I don't, but I still need to figure out how to discuss what it was to me. I think that's something also like Nabokov like made her 12 years old to like really push the like shock awful of it Mm -hmm. but it's also like if she was 40 years old abducting her and taking her on a road trip against her will and raping her that would still be bad hot take (laughs) (laughs) there's a this is tangential but there's a good book called lolita the making of a cover girl or something like that i have the pdf somewhere uh but it's about Mm -hmm. the covers of the book lolita and nabokov explicitly said that he didn't want any depictions of a young girl on it but obviously no one listened to him (laughs) But they had people design alternative color covers because obviously book covers are constrained by like public conception of the book and the need to make it interesting so people buy it. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah. a commercial type of thing, but they had people design it as like purely artistic ventures based off of the themes of the book and like their own readings of the book. And it was really, really interesting. There were some really beautiful covers that I loved and they had essays mm-hmm. discussing the covers and And like also about specifically with Lolita, how the film adaptations have become like really enmeshed with the book itself, even though they aren't necessarily the best reading of the book in a lot of ways. And how like so many people haven't read it, haven't even seen the movies, but they just like, like, yeah, it's about like a pedophile. And then like, that's become our reading of the book without having read it. It's been a while since I've read Lolita. Granted, I've read the book at least six or seven times, but I haven't read it for a couple of years. So I don't remember quite clearly how how Dolores ended things with Humbert. This is something that is a point for personal like stickler for me. Her name is Dolores. It's not Lolita. He specifically says that he calls her Lolita while they're in bed. So mm-hmm. for anyone who watches this, her name is Dolores. I remember when we were talking about like the covers and stuff, um, and you were like an image that really stands out to me are these like red sunglasses but I could only accept that image in an ironic sort of way again to me because the reading of Dolores as having any type of agency even like a, a little seed of agency is really dear to me I remember like talking about our sort of images of the book and like I I remember a lot of water like I remember a lot of the beach right they went to the beach and like I think that is kind of, um, it's influenced by this movie I watched. It's based on a Stephen King novel, I think. But the premise is like this woman goes to, like goes on a holiday with her husband who's like 10 or 20 years older than her. And she's also, she's like 40-ish. Um, but then like they want to spice it up or something. So then he like wants to use these handcuffs on her, but she has been sexually assaulted in her past. So she like kind of freaks out and then she handcuffs him to the bed, I think. No, 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 no. She let, she lets him handcuff her to the bed, but then he has a heart attack and he dies. And so (laughs) she is stuck to the bed. There's no neighbors because it's like a vacation home or whatever. So she has to like make all these decisions about how to like 
get the fuck out. And she starts dissociating and like, there's these two characters that her her dissociated brain comes up with. One of them is like a really, really victimized version of her, of herself, who tells her like, just go to, just go to sleep, just, just starve to death. It's going to be fine. Like, just give up. And then there's this really sort of harsh version of her husband who's like, of course, of course, you're just going to give up. Like, like, of course you're like this. You never, you never wanted to get better. You never wanted to try. Yeah. It feels like those are the only two options given to us on some scale. Like either we're the victim who could do nothing and who will never move forward or like it's our fault. It's also granted Stephen King writing about woman, another grain of salt there. And also with Lolita, Nabokov wrote that book and I don't think he yeah. experienced anything Dolores experienced. So yeah. I'm sure there are but- countless PhD theses written on this. <laughs> For sure. It was interesting um, because I discussed Lolita in the context of a class on art and ethics. And there were people in the class who believed that books like Lolita should not be written. There were they there were some people like one or two that believed that books like that should not exist because of the glorification, you know, of pedophilia and the possibility that somebody could identify with Humbert Humbert and it, it would enable them to commit whatever crimes they're going to commit. I think the glorification of pedophilia, like that's something that's a greater cultural problem. And I think one of the points of the book is that, like, are you able to resist Humbert's narrative enough so that you like? can see clearly something back to the book like covering Lolita they talked there was an essay in it and they were talking about like the use of the schoolgirl and like her little plaid skirt and stuff like that and you know how that's been used on the cover of Lolita countless times and they talk about how like they use it to like symbolize this like fallen innocence but the reason it, it doesn't resonate anymore like people don't see it as fallen innocence because they no longer see children as innocent and therefore, like, it can't represent a fallen innocence because she was never deemed innocent to begin with. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, again, just why we are so hard away from, like, almost putting, like, an evil versus good framework on the book. Like, Dolores yeah. doesn't need to be good for Humbert to be evil. <laughs> yeah, you know? she doesn't need to be good to deserve to have had a, yeah. a normal life. Yeah, exactly. Like, and Humbert emphasizes that, oh, she's bratty and she's selfish and I do think it's like Nabokov hopefully being very intentional showing that like Humbert calling these things out and not seeing himself as an adult and her as a child who you know has emotions has impulses is just further Humbert revealing himself you know yeah I hope that was intentional (laughs) that's the thing is also like I don't have a lot of faith in Nabokov to be a truly feminist insightful author but I think it's okay that like I can form my own critical analysis of the book myself and have my own reading of it, regardless I, of whether yeah. or not that's what Nabokov intended when he wrote it. Have you heard of Salo? It's almost stupid that I'm bringing this up now, but like truly no discussion of art and ethics can be had without bringing up Salo. It's this truly disgusting film in three parts and they like... Oh, wait, no, you told uh, me about this, but continue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like four members of like the Italian government kidnap 17 youths, like girls and boys to this like estate where they basically like make them eat shit and like crawl on glass and like get married and have sex with each other and have sex with them and like all of this stuff. And it's like all very explicit and whatnot. Then they kill them at like in the third part. 
Um, and it's like pretty horrible deaths. Like they like burn them. They like burn that. Like they burn them starting with the genitals and stuff like that. It's all this, all, all this stuff. All these uh, apparently references to Western and Russian literature, which is like, wow, cool that they all co- convalesce into that, I guess. It's similar of an experience to the book Lolita in that people are like maybe realizing they're interested in this, like intellectually or even sexually. And then they're like horrified with themselves. You know what I mean? I think that's actually very illuminating. I think that's very educational. Like we have to remember like we're more than our first impulses, more than our first like emotional or sexual like reactions to stuff. Salo has kind of become this like poster child for like letting artists create unethical things. Mm-hmm. Like letting Nabokov write Lolita, letting Salo create this like film that kind of rides the line of like, is this okay to even show people? And it's weird because a lot of the people who praise Salo are like the kind of like college campuses are becoming like snowflake havens type of people. And yet when it was presented to us, the the person who was presenting it to us was like, oh yeah, so he grew up like really anti-government, like this stuff happened to him and this stuff happened to his mom and he was like probably gay, but then he was like run out of the school. Like he couldn't be a teacher anymore because they all found that he was gay and stuff. And I was like, well, if context isn't supposed to matter, then why are you telling us about these like sympathetic facts about the filmmaker, you know? Again, I'm kind of a bull fan. Like I personally think that works of like art or media like Lolita and Salo can exist. Like it's fine, I don't care. But if you're going to be like, they're allowed to exist, they're allowed to do like artistic freedom or whatever, then why are you making me feel bad about this guy's life or whatever, you know? Also, the reason he got kicked out of his like school and his village and stuff. Yes, he was gay or whatever. He like had gay sex, but he was also having gay sex with a student. Like he was a professor having sex with a student. It's like, (laughs) where is that? Like, why aren't we talking about that? I don't know. I just think like we put all these moralizing, like we're we insist on not moralizing stuff while refusing to like take off the moralizing glasses we already have on. This is, yeah, this isn't a tough one to wrap up because like, (laughs) what is there to say? All I can say is that like, you know, it's really up to each individual person who has lived through an experience abuse and assault and rape to decide what they need. And then it's up to us, the rest of the world to give them what they need and to help them with what they need. And that's, really the first priority it's not my job my job to judge or moralize for what they say that they want or what they say that they need I don't get Mm -hmm. to pass judgment on the legitimacy of someone's experiences based off of how they react to it I just get to do my best to help them through that reaction and through the healing process whatever it may be and restorative justice is like the at making it more available like making it more common building that pathway like literally just making a paperwork trail for that to happen, hiring facilitators, institutionalizing it a little is like the smallest step that we can take toward just allowing survivors of sexual assault more pathways toward feeling better, recovering and getting justice. This has been the third episode for the March calendar of Roosevelt Trash and Read Community. I'm Ryan. I'm Catherine. And you can follow Roosevelt Trash on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and on Instagram at Roosevelt Trash. Or you can follow our personal Instagrams at R-R-R-Y-A-N and at Catherine.Shark. 
próxima. Bye.